We've all heard about the Long Island serial killer, but there are so many more true crime stories there. Did you know that Long Island is the home of roughly 40% of the entire population of New York State? With that many people living there, it's no wonder that it has a lot more unsolved murders and missing persons cases than we know. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another couple of stories from the world of true crime, and we'll see what kind of spiritual and safety lessons we can find there. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because we're going to talk about a practical way you can do just that. This is Season 4, Episode 6. We're going to talk about one unsolved murder and one missing persons case from Long Island today. And hopefully, someone who hears this has some information and will come forward to share it with authorities. Seymour and Arlene Tankliff were a wealthy Long Island couple. Seymour founded Tankliff Associates, an insurance agency. Aside from a few health issues that Seymour was experiencing, life was good. Until September 7, 1988 when Seymour and Arlene were attacked inside their home. Their 17-year-old son, Martin, was starting his senior year of high school that day. And before he was ready to leave for school, he found his mother still in her bed, bludgeoned and with her throat cut. She was dead. His father, Seymour, had also been bludgeoned and had his throat cut. But Seymour was still alive. Marty called 911, and paramedics took his father to the hospital. Seymour lay in a coma for 29 days before he too passed away. Now, police in any kind of death investigation are usually going to start with those closest to the deceased. So, of course, Marty was a likely suspect, even though he told police that they should be looking at a man named Jerry. Police couldn't find any evidence tying Marty to the crime of his parents' murders but they decided that that just meant that he cleaned up the scene very well. After that terrible attack, police took him to their station, but they didn't read him his Miranda rights. And they also didn't let him talk to the family's attorney. Marty offered to take a polygraph, but police were trying to get him to admit that it was just possible that maybe he'd blacked out during the attack. And of course, Marty said, well, that's possible. And he described how something might have happened. Police decided that this was a confession, but Marty recanted immediately and refused to sign the statement that the officers had written out. Marty was charged with two counts of murder. After being convicted of first-degree murder in the death of his father and second-degree murder in the death of his mother, Marty was sentenced to 50 years in prison. But he maintained that he had been coerced into confessing because the detective that was interviewing him told him that his father had come out of his coma and said that Marty had attacked him and Arlene. Of course, it's true that the police are allowed to lie to suspects, but there are a lot of different factors about what would make a confession more than likely be coerced, and Marty's age certainly made him susceptible to coercion. I think that that should have been taken into consideration. Marty always insisted that the most likely suspect was Jerry Storman, his father's partner in a chain of bagel stores. Sturman owed Seymour over half a million dollars. I would definitely say that that is a potential motive. One week after the murders, 
Jerry Sturman moved to California, where he started living under a new identity. Now, moving is one thing. Maybe he already had that planned. Maybe he just wanted to get away from the tragedy. Those kind of things are, are kind of plausible. But living under a new identity? That's not something that people just do every day. Why would he think that he needed to do that? Years later, a man named Joseph Gorasio came forward saying that his father, Joseph Creedon, had shown him a gun and said that he would use it on a witness if they testified against him in the killings of Arlene and Seymour Tankliff. Now, Creedon has since died, and he took whatever he knew about the killings with him. In 2004, Marty's attorneys were able to get an evidentiary hearing so that they could have the court take another look at Marty's case. Joseph Gorasio testified during one of Marty's appeals, and he wasn't the only one. Four other witnesses said that Joseph Creedon had told them he was involved in killing the Tankliffs. And there's more. In an affidavit, three other conspirators were named as allegedly being involved in these murders. Because of the hard work of his attorneys, Marty was released from prison and had his conviction vacated in 2008. He filed a lawsuit against the state of New York for wrongful imprisonment. Eventually, the state settled the case for over $3 million, and Suffolk County, who Marty had also sued, settled for around $18 million. I couldn't find any information showing that the police have attempted to pursue Jerry Sturman or the other named conspirators as possible suspects. Now, Jerry Sturman was deposed nearly a decade ago, but during the questioning, he took the fifth 140 times, refusing to answer the question. The murders of the Tankliffs remain unsolved. If you have any information about the deaths of Seymour or Arlene Tankliff, please call the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office at 631-852-3185. And you can find that number in the show notes. It also helps if you'll share the podcast with anybody who has lived in the Long Island area. You never know who might know something that they don't even realize is important. Long Island resident Noreen Brown left her new Hyde Park home around 11 p.m. on December 13, 1990. The 32-year-old never came back. People who knew her did not think that the stay-at-home mom would really leave her 18-month-old son and 5-month-old daughter voluntarily. Noreen's husband, John, said that she had gone to the store so that she could buy supplies to make Christmas cookies. He called Noreen's friend, Elaine, and asked her to drive by the store Noreen was going to since she lived very close to it. Elaine did, and she made a horrible discovery. Noreen's car was in the parking lot. It was locked, and there were wrapped Christmas presents in the back seat. But there was no sign of Noreen. Police took down a missing persons report, and an investigation began. Noreen's husband, John, had told News 12 Long Island that he believes that his wife was murdered. Noreen's sister told that same news outlet in the early 90s that John and Noreen had a very rocky relationship, and she believes that John killed Noreen. To most people, John seemed like just a typical suburban guy. He was a firefighter and a little league coach, but Noreen told friends that she wanted a divorce and John refused to give her one. He said she was never going to leave him and take his children away from him. Shortly before her disappearance, Noreen filed a complaint against John for domestic violence. 
Now, if there was domestic violence in their relationship, and if Noreen was really ready to leave John, that would have been a very dangerous time for her. According to the website, domesticabuseshelter.org, nearly 4,000 women are killed in domestic violence situations each year. And 75% of those women died as they were trying to leave or after they had just left. An employee of the store Noreen was supposed to have gone to remembered seeing Noreen's car, but not Noreen. Many people turned out to search for her, with one glaring exception, her husband. John said to help search for her would be just too painful. He also suddenly refused to let Noreen's family see the children. I don't care how painful he thought that might have been for him. Those children needed the support of as many people who loved them as they could possibly have, and he denied them that. It wasn't long after Noreen's disappearance that John decided to fill in a well behind a plumbing store that he owned. Police say that he would not give them permission to search any of the family properties, and they didn't have probable cause to get a search warrant. No persons of interest or suspects have been publicly named in Noreen's case. Noreen has brown hair and brown eyes, and she's of German and Japanese descent. She was last seen wearing a dark-colored wool coat, red slacks, and white sneakers. For updated information on Noreen's case, you can visit the Find Noreen Facebook page. And there's a link to that and other places you can find more information in the show notes. If you have any information at all, anything, on the circumstances regarding Noreen Brown's disappearance, please call the Nassau County Police Department at 516-573-8800. Or you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-244-TIPS. There are so many families out there looking for answers, and they need your help. Please share this episode with as many people as you possibly can. Someone knows what happened in both of today's cases. And it's time for them, if they feel safe enough, to come forward. And hearing this episode might be just the nudge that they need. And it's also a great way for you to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So please, share this episode, share the podcast so people can listen to other unsolved cases. If we can get the unlovely truth out to as many people as possible, together we can make a real difference. The more we talk about unsolved cases, like the two we've investigated today, the more, for me anyway, it just gets kind of frustrating to realize just how many people have gotten away with evil acts like murder. It makes you want to question God. And in his wisdom, God addressed this in his word. So let's take a look at a passage from Job, 21st chapter, verses 7 through 16. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. 
Yet they say to God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. Now let's be honest. Haven't we all wondered the same thing that Job is wondering here? The prophet Jeremiah asked really similar questions, and so did the psalmists. I think it helps to remember that while the wicked and evil may seem to be prospering in this world, this world isn't all there is. And we don't like to think about the fact that God even loves those who are committing evil acts. That just doesn't seem fair, and it doesn't seem right. But God's love is for everyone, not just the people we think deserve it. God has a sovereign plan, and he wants everyone to be saved. It's still hard, though, living in a fallen world where we're all touched by the effects of sin, whether it's our own or someone else's. Habakkuk wrote in the first chapter of the book Habakkuk, verses 2 through 4, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. That pretty much sums up exactly how I feel about our two cases today. But when I remember that even though God can do anything he wants to without any help from any of us, I have to think about the fact that he often chooses to accomplish his will through us. So that means rather than blaming God for the evil in the world and what seems like a terrible lack of justice, I think we've got to look at ourselves too and wonder, was there something we could have or should have done in certain situations? Ouch, that pinches, doesn't it? I listened to a fabulous TED Talk by former police officer Michael Arntfeld, and he wants us all to get in touch with our inner crime fighter. He says that an estimated 95% of all crimes that are solved have some sort of civilian involvement in those solutions. With over a quarter million unsolved murders in North America, it sure seems like we do need to get involved if we want to have any chance of those numbers getting better any chance of families getting answers, getting justice, getting anything approaching closure. I've put a link in the show notes to the Murder Accountability Project. You can use it to see how many unsolved cases are right there in your area, just waiting for someone to help. Maybe that someone is you. If you like this episode, be sure to check out some of the earlier ones that I've put out there, other unsolved homicides, other missing persons cases that still need someone to step up and help. And you can also help somebody else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share the unlovely truth with people that you know are interested in true crime and are also very involved in their faith and wanting to see justice done. You can also subscribe to The Unlovely Truth on Apple Podcasts, and it really helps. The algorithm will put The Unlovely Truth out in front of more people if you give me a five-star rating and leave a nice review. 
I would so appreciate your help in that. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.